Hello, and welcome back to The Garden Podcast. I'm Chris Young, editor of The Garden magazine. In this podcast, I talk to the people behind the words and images in our monthly magazine. It's a good chance to explore some of the stories behind the stories in its glossy pages. Later, we'll discover the diverse flavours and uses of cooking apples with food writer Mark Diacono, and we'll also be looking at what makes a perfect garden compost. But to begin, nestled between the Lake District and North Pennines, Lowther Castle and Gardens is a hidden gem of the Cumbrian countryside. It's an ancient castle, but having become ruined for decades after the Second World War, its future was uncertain. That was until 2010, when the current guardian, Jim Lowther, approached designer Dan Pearson for his help. Dan, with Jim, and also the head gardener, Martin Ogle, have gone on to develop a really special garden, one that not only celebrates the history and the past of this amazing site, but also responds to the landscape and to the plants that grow there. And to find out more about this project and what the future has in store, I spoke to Dan Pearson about his work and his hopes for the future of this RHS partner garden. So Dan, can you give me a bit of background about the project and tell me when you got first involved? Jim Lowther asked me to come and have a look at Lowther Castle in 2010. At that point, he was going for HLF funding to try and find a way forward for what had he'd inherited from his father. His father had ruinised the castle after he came back from the Second World War, taking the roof off it, selling the contents, planting a Sitka spruce plantation over the 140-acre historic gardens and then putting battery chicken farms over the formal lawns. And Jim was left with this legacy of a garden that was completely overgrown, a castle that was totally unsound because its roof had been taken off, and um, something that was very austere and essentially a lost leader, but it sat within a 3,000-acre estate which goes back in the family to the mid-1200s. So an extraordinary history and an extraordinary setting. One of the things that I found remarkable about the place was this incredibly strong and potent atmosphere, even though it had been ruined as a place. It had this amazing feeling of history running throughout. And I said to Jim, well, look, this site has consistently overwhelmed all your previous generations who've tried to do something with it. Wouldn't it be interesting for us to find a way into a ruined, forgotten place and allow people to feel like they were part of that sense of discovery? But it took quite a few years and and a few obstacles to get from the 2010 master plan to actually get planting. Yes, Dominic Cole, a wonderful landscape architect, was involved in the project as well. We did the master plan and then Dominic came in and restored the formal lawns, which was one of the big first moves, um, which meant taking away all the battery chicken farms, cutting down the Sitka spruce, opening up this big north-south meridian. There was 
the castle ruins, of course, and an area in front of the castle which sat alongside these newly opened up lawns. And we worked on those two spaces first. And I planted a garden within the ruins of the East Wing and the castle tower that would evoke a feeling of a ruin being colonised, recolonized again, but by a garden that had and is still full of wonderful treasures. So we took that idea of a ruin, remade it with a garden full of wonderful things. And I really want to talk to you about that East Wing garden and the tower, because when I visited, you know, it absolutely took my breath away. That whole atmosphere within the castle walls, where you can look up to the sky, you can look through the windows, because they're not there, but in in terms of the shape of the windows, and then you're surrounded by this romantic, ungardened space. How do you create a garden to look not very gardened? How do you ungarden somewhere? Well, in a way, we had to reconstruct the ruin to make it stable so that we could then clothe the walls and it be safe. And the remains of the castle, you know, is basically this room with two stories rising above you and the windows and no floors. And so you had all these wonderful apertures and walls to clothe. And the feeling of it being wild is not just down to how we've planted it, it's very much down to the people who are maintaining it. And Martin Ogle and his team, the head gardener there, has really understood what we're wanting to do in terms of this feeling like a garden that's almost forgotten and um, Mm. has slightly got the upper hand of the people who might have gardened there once before. And it's a romantic vision, um, which is not always easy to pull off. So... I've been going back on a yearly basis to work with Martin and his team to develop this master plan. And every time I go out, we look at the progress of this garden and say, can we afford to let that bit feel a bit more wild? Should we be planting something there to compensate for something which is you're not doing so well or doing too well. Absolutely. And Dan, my my final question really is, you've mentioned this as a sort of a 30, 50-year vision. What's, firstly, your hope over the next few years? And secondly, do you ever really want to do something very modern there or something really to cut through any of that evolution? Or are you going to stay pure to the aesthetic of this garden, responding to its ecology and its environment and just continuing to change? Well, my hope, of course, is that what we're doing there is appropriate to the place in terms of it having a long-term future. I think because we're gardening only where we need to and gardening with the environment, hope that we are able to do something that's going to be manageable long-term and not fall foul to what happened to the previous owners of the estate with things being too ambitious. I think Mm. that... That's a very important part of why this time it's going to work. I hope, too, that people will feel that this meeting point of a garden, lightly gardened, and yet a garden that celebrates its locale, is somewhere that has a growing interest. You know, we are finding that people are delighted by what they find there, and to imagine that people will appreciate going there and learning from the place in the years to come is something that I find very rewarding 
In terms of the modern take, I think what we are doing there is very modern. We are gardening within our means. We are making some pretty bold moves where we need to. The garden within the walls, for instance, and the mm. flower parterre, they are very definite modern marks that we're making, but they still have this connection through to history. So I think that the feeling of modernity doesn't always have to be something that feels like it's cutting edge. I think there's a quiet modernity to this, which is about doing something that's appropriate and ultimately timeless. So it feels like an incredibly exciting thing to be working on and something that really has a very positive future. It certainly does. And having visited, you know, as I say, it was a hugely special place. And it's something that I'd encourage anyone to go and visit because it has a unique atmosphere and a unique identity. And there is so much more to come from that location. So Dan Pearson, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Chris. You can read my full article and the accompanying images in October's edition of The Garden magazine, which will be winging its way to RHS members very soon. Apart from getting the magazine for free, another perk of RHS membership is an early chance to get tickets for our flower shows and to visit on members' days. Early bird discounted tickets for some of our 2020 shows have just gone on sale, so what are you waiting for? Get yours for Chatsworth, Hampton Court Palace and Tatton Park now. For links to buy tickets or how to join the RHS, visit our programme page at rhs.org.uk forward slash The Garden Podcast. This month's magazine is full of many highlights. One of the really interesting articles is written by Anna Pavord, and she's writing all about colchicums, those lovely bulbs that flower now at autumn time, and they're a bit of a collector's item. There's also been an RHS plant trial about them, and this article brings all of that information together and shows you the range of colchicums that could be grown in gardens. As ever, Anna's writing is sublime and just makes you want to grow more and more plants. Deputy Editor Phil Clayton has focused this month on walls and trellises and the plants you can grow against them. This is really important for anybody who's either got a fence or a wall or a freestanding obelisk. What are the best climbers and plants to grow against them? You don't want plants to over-dominate, but you also want them to celebrate and to show off a bit. And Phil has brought a huge selection of plants together to really inspire us to look at our vertical structures and to dress them and clothe them accordingly. One of the things we probably don't do enough in the Garden magazine is review gardens and to see how they fared over time. This month, Noel Kingsbury revisits Scamston Walled Garden, an RHS partner garden, but one that was a site of Pete Aldolf's planting from about 10 years ago. 
Many people will know of peat and his use of perennials and grasses, and Noel has a review of the garden to see how they have fared over time, which have been the really good doers and which ones have needed a bit more extra maintenance or management. It's a fascinating article, and Noel is hugely knowledgeable in perennials anyway, but he brings that knowledge and just relates it to the planting at Scamston, so we can learn not only from Pete and his beautiful planting style, but also from what plants work and how they work over time. The other feature that is really worth a read is by that guru of no-dig, Charles Dowding. Charles almost has a cult status amongst many gardeners, and that's really because he has been a huge proponent of no-dig. It sounds so simple and is so useful and actually saves a lot of time in the garden. But Charles really is such a keen and knowledgeable fruit and veg grower, and this article gives us some really clear reasons why he thinks no-dig is certainly the way to get gardening. And one final article that caught my eye this month was on composting. We're all looking to reduce our garden waste. And one of the most environmentally friendly ways you can do that is to get that compost heap going. But what are the tricks of the trade to ensure you end up with lovely crumbly brown compost and not a dark sticky mess? Our own garden writer, Melissa Mabbott, is also a keen composter. She recently visited RHS Garden Harlow Car to speak to the team there and discover the secrets of making the perfect compost. Composting is a great way to help the environment and your garden. If you give your garden waste to the local authority in the bins, that has a carbon footprint because it takes fuel to transport it away. So if you can deal with your garden waste at home, that actually reduces carbon emissions. But also you're producing compost, which is really good for your garden. It's going to help the soil structure and uh, creates a nice healthy balance in your garden. It's just an all round really great thing to do if you can. At the RHS Garden at Harlow Carr, like most other big gardens, they'll have giant heaps behind the scenes where visitors won't see, where they put all their garden waste into great big amounts of heap that they literally have to use diggers to move around. Now that is obviously not practical for a home gardener. So they've also got some demonstration heaps in the kitchen garden, which is what I looked at with the horticulturalist there, Alison Mundy. Now, she gave me some really good tips because these aren't really compost heaps that are anything different to what you can do at home. They're very achievable at home. You perhaps need a couple of metres square space to put them in somewhere, somewhere a little bit shady and just an out of the way spot that you perhaps you wouldn't be using for growing anywhere. What she was doing that was really interesting was making sure that there was loads of air in the mix. A lot of people really worry about getting the exact right ratio of woody, hard, carbon-rich materials and green, soft, leafy materials. But she recommended that actually you just need to get more of a feel for getting the right mix. Don't worry too much about ratios, just aim for 50-50 thereabouts. But when you pile it all together, it needs to be kind of feel almost quite light. So if you give it a bit of a whack with a fork, it has some bounce to it. It doesn't want to feel heavy or slumped because that is where you have an airless mix that is not going to decompose down very quickly. So you need to aim for roughly about half of the heat being made up of woody carbon rich elements and that could be anything like hard woody prunings, dried leaves, also things like paper, so things that are quite dry and generally a bit sort of brown looking. The other half should be made up of green materials, so that things like grass cuttings, uh, leaves that have been collected up. It can also include things like deadheaded flowers or even annual weeds that haven't 
gone to seed yet, but you shouldn't include things like perennial weeds with any roots attached because they're going to infect your compost and potentially you'll end up spreading them through your garden. What she tried to do is kind of mix together things that were going to create air through the heap because that's what gets the compost working quite quickly. So things like scrunched up paper, if you put that in, and it's always better to put scrunched up paper in rather than shredded paper because shredded paper can actually compact and become quite airless. But also woody prunings, if you kind of like put a little layer of woody prunings in and then some more green stuff on the top, that's going to make sure there's lots of air, there's lots of pockets of air within that compost. And if you kind of give the compost a bit of a press, you'll notice that it has a bit of a bounce to it rather than just feeling like a really compacted lump having the right moisture balance is quite important as well it doesn't want to be too dry if it feels like it maybe is too dry and nothing's really happening with the compost she said to add in some green material like some nice rhubarb leaves or hosta leaves something like that or some grass cuttings mix them in Uh, you can also water a heap if it feels a bit too dry as well but it's best to just try and get the moisture right with your balance of ingredients It's also quite important that it shouldn't get too wet, so you should always cover a heap. If it's an open heap, uh, put a bit of carpet over the top or even a bit of tarpaulin, or if you have a black plastic bin, then that's got a lid and that just solves the problem itself. I feel like the most important thing with compost is to have more than one bin or heap on the go at any one time. What you do is you add in all your waste, you kind of mix it up a little bit as you're going, you top it up, you wait till it's full, and then you do one big inversion, so you just fork all of that into the next empty bay next to it and that mixes it together which will get the compost breaking down much more quickly stick a cover over it and then you leave it and then you go back to starting filling up the original bin and that way you're filling up one bin while the other bin is working away slowly breaking down into a nice compost so that way you have uh, one bay that's breaking down turning into compost and one that's being filled by the time you've used up your compost that's ready you'll probably be ready to move the first heap into the second heap so you're having kind of like a process rather than just adding unrotted material into a compost heap there are lots of different types of compost bins you can get on the market these days the uh, simplest and perhaps cheapest way to go is with a big plastic bin which has a cover on it and a bit like a dalek These are great, but if you can, go for the biggest one you can get because the bigger your compost heap is, the more efficient it will be and the quicker it will break down. Very small compost heaps tend to be really, really slow and they probably won't be very useful if you're a keen gardener. I think the best thing is to use wooden bays. You can either make these out of slats of wood or pallets. It's a really simple way of putting them together. You can put four pallets together. If you've got perhaps up to eight pallets, you can have two bays next to each other as well tie the pallets together with rope and if the gaps between the slats and the pallets are quite big you can actually line it with some cardboard as well break down some cardboard boxes and then use that to line the outside and that will keep the compost nice and warm and contained and I think that's a really easy way to make some usable bays which are really easy to access they're about the right height so you can still get into them and they're easy for you to take off the front if you need to access the compost inside as well but do remember to cover them over with some tarpaulin or an old carpet to keep that moisture in. So after a few months or perhaps if you're lucky even a few weeks you can uncover your compost heap and you should have some lovely black crumbly sweet smelling compost in there that's ready to be used in your garden. Now it'll probably still have some big lumps in it, bits of stick, things that perhaps aren't going to be that useful if you're trying to make a potting mix so you can sieve the compost out and Alison recommended mixing it in with perhaps a little bit of shop-bought compost so that you can make it go further and use that for potting up cuttings, seedlings and using that in the greenhouse. But 
If your compost is a bit more chunky, a really good thing to do with it is to put it on your garden as a mulch. Do it in autumn or in spring and that's going to really help feed your soil organisms, help keep in moisture and just really benefit the soil structure. And to finish on a sweetish note, I spoke to Mark Diacono about the latest in his series on garden tastes to celebrate. We've already heard about his love for gooseberries and rhubarb this year, and now it's a chance for an old classic, cooking apples. Mark, you've written the third article in the series about garden produce and taste, and we've chosen a pretty big topic for you, all about apples for cooking. So tell me, which ones have you grown and why? I've grown quite a few over the years, Chris, but I think the ones that I feel most attached to, I think, are Beauty of Bath, which is a real smasher. It's a really lovely red apple. It gets ready very early and the difficulty with it I guess is that you have to eat it a bit like a cauliflower you know you, you and I know that sounds a bit odd comparing a cauliflower to an apple <laughs> but you, you, you get a very short window when it's ready um, if you get it from the tree right on its moment it is refreshing and bright and aromatic and delicious but it's a very short window and you can't really keep them but that to me is an August apple ahead of the rest of the game I love Lord Lambourne which is a real beauty it's you know full of flavour fairly sharp which I like but it's got a sweetness too and lots of aroma and maybe my favorite certainly my top three would be Veach's Perfection which is an apple that was bred not far from me down here in Devon and it's the classic dual purpose apple amazing to eat um, wonderful texture cooks absolutely beautifully Um, so maybe they're the three that give me most pleasure. So tell me what are your tips for success for growing cooking apples in the garden generally Mark? It's a funny thing with an apple tree, I think. We may be slightly more inclined because they're so familiar just to pop them in the ground. We know they do relatively well in our climate. But every little bit of help, as ever, will help your tree move along. I think certainly start with dig a good hole, make it larger than the roots, water well during the first year especially. You know, it's, that's really important while it's establishing. But another thing that's really crucial, and you wouldn't think it would be for something as big and powerful as a tree, is to keep the area around the trunk mulched, you know, so have a good meter there that's clear. I would mulch with organic matter regularly. So I may be speaking on behalf of other people or even indeed myself, but your advice really is to actually definitely mulch around a tree, is it? It isn't about putting the tree in and then after a couple of years leaving it and letting it crack on. You, you do see a benefit from mulching around it, well, either in terms of tree health or in cropping. I definitely would leave it for four years or so. Just because grass is so competitive, it doesn't seem like it can be against something like the strength of a tree. But while the tree's young, you don't want anything competing for those resources, for water, all of that stuff. So I, I keep everything mulched for about four years. And then after that, the tree's got a good root system established. You'll find that it will really have a benefit in terms of getting itself away really well. It will crop earlier. It'll be a healthier tree. I mean, after that, I might even plant mint and things like that around the base, you know, and um, so I don't have to get in there with the mower or anything. It's certainly early on. I really think it's important to do that. Yeah. So look, we've been talking about how to grow them and why they're so important in gardens and things, but let's talk about the really serious issue, which is obviously how these apples taste. So with your cooked apples, apart from maybe the delicious crumble or pie, what else do you do with your apples, Mark? I like an upside down cake. 
I've got a weakness for, for that, for that, unfortunately, uh, that my stomach will uh, attest to. If I'm absolutely caught with a great bundle of them, then I do a lot of just straight pureeing apple because A, it freezes well, but also B, it's good for breakfast, it's good for pud, it's good for all of yeah, that definitely. stuff, you know. So you're never going to find that you can't use them. Um, but I pickle a lot of apples, which is just amazing. You know, the texture's really good. You get a few flavours in there that you might ordinarily bung into a crumble, you know, a bit, bit of star anise or a bit of clove or something like that. You know, don't go overboard, but they pickle really, really well in kind of rings. I dry them a lot as well. Um, if you've got a dehydrator, which is really worth investing in, or use the oven on the lowest setting, just core and peel them and get them in there. And they just turn into these really intense, almost sweets. You know, they're, they're really marvellous for that but they'd be the main ways that I'd go depending on relative laziness uh, I was feeling at the time <laughs> and waistline as well yeah uh, yeah indeed um so the other thing which is crucial to this is all about storage, isn't it? I mean, there's no point growing these things if you can't actually store them. It's pretty unusual to be able to use them all up immediately. And I know James Curtis, who's the head chef at Hyde Hall, who's contributed to the articles as well, talks about how to use them once you've stored them. Have you got any tips on storing? What's the best way to do it? And how long can you keep apples for? It's really interesting that because I think the key is to be ruthless. When you've got a pile of apples have a kind of sorting system where anything perfect, that's the thing to be stored. Anything slightly not right, a bit of soft here, a bit of whatever, use that straight away, you know, whether it's for cooking or juicing or, or eating straight away. So number one, start with good apples that um, have no sign of anything, you know, in terms of going soft or any damage. Usually with apples, the key thing is to make sure they don't touch is to keep them somewhere cool and dry and to keep them in single layers. You know, and you, and you probably all be familiar with the, the kind of apple storage trays. Sometimes if you can be bothered, it's good if you wrap them in a single layer of paper. That works really well. And then after that, the key is to come back every now and again and just check for any that are doing not so well. And there'll be the odd one here and there. You know, you wouldn't have spotted if it's got a bit of damage or it's just ready to go over. Whip it out because it will spoil others next to it otherwise. Tell me, you've mentioned this on previous podcasts and it's something that I'm you know, really starting to learn from you about the difference in, in the range of taste. And you've talked about it here with apples. Where are we on, on the different taste flavours or the from sourness to sweetness? Do apples give you that range as maybe other fruit or vegetables might? Well, you know what? It's really interesting that because if there's one thing that the things that we've spoken about and written about, you know, gooseberries, rhubarb and apples have in common... The acidity, you know, the sourness is a crucial part of their flavour over time. And maybe what we're getting served up in the supermarkets is much more of the sweeter end. And that, that's something that um, I regret a bit because I think there's a whole world of flavour out there, especially on the more kind of sour end or certainly on where you've got the balance of sweet and sharp that is so pleasurable. And, you know, one of the great things about the varieties that are away from the ones you find in the shop. And, you know, with something like apples, you might find, if you were lucky, you might find 10 varieties if you look through all the supermarkets and stuff, you know, but there are thousands and thousands and thousands out there. And then it's down to us as gardeners to keep them going because if we don't grow any of these varieties, they will necessarily drop off the planet because they are maintained and they are out there and they are part of our kind of cultural landscape purely because we grow them. So we've got a really important part to play in that. And I think once you 
get into that world of flavours and the backstories and so on. That's one of the joys of being a gardener for me, is that it leads to a sort of more interesting life, but it leads to a more interesting diet as well. And that's one of the things that I love about apples. Mark, that's brilliant. You've summed up the series this year so well. And uh, as ever, thank you for all the contribution you've given to us. It's been brilliant talking to you again. Many thanks. Thank you, Chris. It's been a total pleasure. And finally, we've made a few technical changes to our podcast feed. So if you've experienced any issues or problems, please make sure to hit unsubscribe and then resubscribe on your favourite podcast app. That's all we've got time for in this edition of The Garden Podcast. We'll be back next month with a focus on autumn foliage and also growing shallots. Until then, from me, Chris Young and the podcast team, goodbye. Goodbye.